Please be advised that there is some explicit language in this episode. If you'd like to listen to a censored version, you can find that on our website at decisionspacepodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm your guest, T. Nguyen. And this is the podcast about decisions and games. We're so thrilled to have you on the podcast today, T. Nguyen. Uh, we're actually going to be discussing your book, Games Agency as Art, which I think is making a huge splash in a lot of di- different circles uh, in the world in terms of people who are thinkers, whether it's games, philosophy, art. Uh, and this book has really just changed the way that I think about games, and I think that it will for a lot of our listeners too. So for you, if you're listening, you'll probably walk away from the show with a totally new perspective on the games. And thank you so much for coming on the show, T. Nguyen. It's awesome to be here. Like I said, I've been doing... I, I spend a lot of time talking to philosophers who believe that philosophy is important, but think that games are a crap topic to do philosophy about. So I'm thrilled to be in a space where people assume what I believe to be the true and deep view, which is games are some of the most important things in the universe. I'm so thrilled to hear that. And I guess I'd love to introduce sort of your background a little bit. So T is a philosopher and a professor, writer, and transformative thinker who thinks about games, trust, intimacy, echo chambers, communities, and incentives. And he's the author of the book that I mentioned, Games Agency as Art. Uh, It's phenomenal, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. And we're going to discuss a lot of the ideas that are grappled with in that book over the course of the show. Uh, But I also think in light of what you just said, uh, I want to remark you're also a Reiner Canisia fan, which yes. I'm a huge Canisia fan. So I reading that in the book just made me very, very happy. In fact, and we're going to get to this, but the deepest thought in the book is, I wouldn't say stolen because I cite him, but taken directly from Reiner Canizia. I'd been like paralyzed for a year trying to understand things. And then I listened to a talk with Reiner Canizia. And unsurprisingly, for those of you that have been exposed to his design genius, he just like lays out the essence of heart of games and like a couple lines and i was just like oh my god that text was so brilliant that uh listeners who've listened to a previous episode of ours on objectives will know that uh it actually inspired a whole nother episode and caused this other shift in how i think about objectives and games period i think that's the line you're referring yeah, to right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that objectives are the game for all yes. intents and purposes that if you change the objective of chess it's a completely different game and that yeah awesome I think that maybe we should get into, we'll talk about some of the core ideas of games agency as art uh, just at the outset. So we can make sure we all have this shared understanding, uh, listeners and us, uh, of some of the core ideas. That, and then we'll just grapple with interesting questions, talk about games, and I think try to peel back some of the layers and maybe, like you said, really delve into game-focused things. So I will introduce the topic really briefly and then maybe throw things over to you to tell me that I am not handling it as deftly as I could be. Uh, but I think in my eyes, the core idea of the book is that games are a unique form of art. And in the way that paintings are a form of art that manipulate what we can see, and music is the art of manipulating what we can hear, games are the art of manipulating what we do. Uh, and not So they're the art of agency, the art of what we do and what we can do and what we should do. And they let us do many things. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole, so the whole place the book came from was, so I was teaching some philosophy of art classes 
and I wanted to do a case study. And uh, the actually, the first time I tried to do a case study, it was about whether comic books were an art form, and that failed utterly because none of my students could even wrap their heads around why anyone would deny that. And so it was just like, what? who would debate this? But the second time I taught a class, I taught a class on whether video games were art. I mean, that was the central case study. And interestingly, that gripped my students. Even, I mean, all of them play games, but the question of whether they're art really mattered. And so I ended up reading a bunch of stuff about uh, the philosophy and the theory of art. And what you see over and over again is his attempt to assimilate games to older forms of media that are more respected. So people will say things like games tell stories, games are fictions, game create, games create world, game tellers are storytellers, um, games are a special kind of movie. And I'm not saying that games don't tell stories. They definitely do. And I'm not saying it's not great when they tell stories, but I'm saying that's not all there is to games. And I just remember, so this debate has been held at a few different places in you know, the world about games, in the academic world about games or the cultural discussion about games. Even outside of academia, I think you, you see this all the time. You see, I think even now, every year, there are blog posts and magazine articles saying games are great because they tell stories and we are essentially story-based people. Games are great when they tell narratives. And one of the interesting things to me was I ended up reading a ton of stuff in this space and the stuff would carefully concentrate on story arcs, scripts, character, all the stuff you know from your English class. And I would find whole books that would never talk about skill or choice or decisions. And it drove me fucking nuts. And in particular, what it looked like, it was so different from, at the same time, I was spending a lot of time on Board Game Geek uh, and reading things I thought were really insightful about the relationship of mechanics to games. I was reading tons of designer diaries and dev blogs. And I also got really excited. We can talk about this more, but there was this incredible website on for a while, a forum called The Forge, where a lot of indie tabletop role-playing, like a lot of the people that are now kind of the, the, the ruling geniuses of indie tabletop role-playing game started like talking about like what wasn't working for them mechanically about Dungeons and Dragons and trying to push that forward. And all this like incredible, uh, this incredible the detailed discussion of how you manipulate rules to create particular experiences of decision. This idea that the core of games is about interesting choices this just wouldn't show up in all this academic discussion and all this cultural discussion. And I like, and, and you know, since I do philosophy of art, I'm really familiar with this thing that happens in history where every time you get a new art form, people obsessively try to force it into the box of an older art form. So one of my favorite examples of this is when photography first came out, you know, photography is really crisp and clear and people are like, oh, no, no, we can't have that. That's not art. And so people would scratch up frames, put Vaseline on the lenses, make things fuzzy and do everything they could to make photographs look like paintings and kind of refuse in certain ways when they were trying to make photographs arty. They would refuse, to my mind, the special powers of photography. And it took decades before people like Cartier-Bresson would be like, no, no, here's what's special about photography. You can capture this fleeting moment. And photographer artists should lean into that should accept that and, and really take advantage of what's special about that. So, I mean, 
I'm, in some ways, what I'm saying is nothing new to game designers. But this weird thing happens. It keeps feeling to me when people are like, well, if games are art or if they're supposed to be important, we have to. And it, I mean, it feels to me like people are saying, make them less gamey and make them more like story, like fiction. And what I want to kind of say is like, no, let games be games. Let the art of games be about what games are especially about. And so I was trying to figure this stuff out, reading all these designer diaries. And then I found this moment uh, that really crystallized things for me. Uh, and it's a line from Reiner Knitia. And the version I heard, I think he said this in lots of ways. What he said was, I think this was at a talk um, at a game developer conference. He said, the most important tool in my game designer toolkit is the point system because the point system specifies the motivations for the players. It tells the players what to want. And first of all, this seems on the one hand totally obvious, right? You open a rule book, it tells you cooperate with these people, collect gold, and you're like, done. These people are my friends. Those people are my enemies. I want gold. Let's go, right? You can just adopt it. The next thing is, I mean, for a philosopher, this is kind of a wild thought. It's obvious and totally wild that someone can just tell you what to desire and you can just do it. But what it gave me was this key formulation. And the formulation for me is what game designers are doing is they're working in the artistic medium of agency itself. They're telling you not, they're not just creating a world, they're creating an alternate agency for you where that agency consists primarily of affordances, that is a set of abilities, constraints and abilities about how you can act, but most importantly, a goal. They're creating a different skeleton of agency for you to step into. And I think that's very different. The way that specifies action is very different from the way, say, a yoga teacher tells you what to do. They just tell you the action to take. The game designer doesn't tell you the action to take specific, like explicitly. Rather, they give you a goal instead of affordances, and then you decide the actions for yourself within that sculpted skeleton of agency. So another way to put it is I think there are a lot of ways you can design action. And what's distinctive about games is not just that it's designing action, but that it's designing action via a specific medium, which is a specification of abilities and goals. So that's the that's the core distinctive part of the game designer's art. One, one interesting background thing you might want to know. So way back when I started this project, I didn't well, before I quite had that articulation. The earlier way I had of putting it was that people are trying to say that games are like fictions, but I thought if games were like anything, they were like governments or urban design, right? Sets of constraints that shape the action of free agents, right? It's like skillful shaping of actions. And I think all of urban planners, government designers, they all try to shape action. But the Knizia thing revealed to me this big difference. One thing about typically urban planners and governments is they don't get to tell the people what the people want. In the standard models of governance, right? People have their different wants and governance, governments add constraints to kind of shape action. What's distinctive about the game designer is the game designer say, no, no, here's what you want. This is what you want in a game, go. And that I think is what's utterly distinctive about games as an art form. This idea is just so wonderful and so powerful. And I think you sort of say that you think that the idea is obvious, but I think it's, and it is to those of us who've played games, right? We're used to this idea that we just take on these things, but it's not something we typically think about. And I, I didn't know that I was going to go to this question up front, but it makes me realize with where the conversation has gone. What, Based on this frame, what does 
trust play a special relationship in games compared to other forms of art because of the relationship of the designer to the participants? Like where, where does trust exist in this relationship? Like I don't have to trust a musician to listen to their music. Can we go back? Maybe I do. Can I say one thing about the last thought, just about the obviousness of the ideas. It's funny because sometimes in a certain light, it feels to me like I'm just repeating back to game designers what they told me <laughs> using some extra philosophy language. And I, I mean, I kind of think that's what I'm doing, right? Like, I don't think these ideas are original to me. I think what I found was there were academics who are really trained in being clear using a weird framework. And then there are game designers and game players who were on this topic. They're all clearly talking about this stuff. But I think without kind of a background in aesthetic theory, which made the discussion kind of vague. So I feel like the thing that I'm doing is I'm soaking up all these like designer diaries and conversations between game designers and players and being like, hold on, hold on. I'm also the philosopher that knows about the philosophy of art. So I can translate this into like slightly clearer language and say it back to you with like, I'm just going to make up a terminology for you. And I think like the, the thing that's been most exciting to me is uh, I've been giving these talks and I've had game designers and game players come up to me. And what they say that I have cherished the most is you've given me the words to clearly say what I've always felt. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I wanted. Like, I don't think like if I describe games and game designers were like, that's a radical theory, but I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. I think I would have failed. <laughs> but the idea that they can sure. recognize in the theory, the thing they felt, but couldn't articulate. That, to me, is the success I wanted. And in particular, the feedback I've gotten that I'm the proudest of is game designers saying things like, oh, I thought I wanted to make a game that was like deeply gamey, but I thought I had to make it more like a movie to have it be serious art. But having this language from your book helps me articulate to myself what I really cared about and not get sucked into that other vision. Which, again, I'm not saying... If you, what you want to do is tell stories with your games, you should do that. That's awesome. But you don't have to, right? There's, there are other ways of developing the art of games besides in the direction of traditional narratives. Okay, trust. By the way, you, I'm not sure if you know this. Do you know that my other main project in philosophy is working on trust? I do not know. I did not know that. Okay, this is <laughs> the other half of my career is the theory of trust. This is, this is the Great. shit I work on. And trust is incredibly interesting to me. But I think, I think one, there's a profound trust. There's a profound act of trust when you play a game because you're literally shaping your agency along the lines that someone else delineated. The one thing I disagree with you about is I don't think that's special to games. I think there's a profound trust in any relationship we have with art, especially art we take intensely. And that's just, that's, that's pan art. I actually wrote a paper about this called Trust and Sincerity in Art. And I think one of the things you do is, I mean, it's not, the simplest thing is you devote time and energy, a lot of time and energy, especially if the art is difficult in any way. And that takes a lot of trust, right? Like mm. I don't need to trust like Marvel. I mean, I can just sit down and watch, fucking watch that on a plane. But if I'm going to pay intense attention to like a Kubrick movie, right? If I'm going to, try to like unlock what's going on behind a George O'Keefe painting, which takes like focus that requires buy-in. I have to trust that it's worth it. But more than that, I think like all experiences of art are these experiences where you open yourself and you make yourself vulnerable. So one of my favorite uh, philosophers, Annette Beyer, who really started the modern conversation about trust. She's a feminist epistemologist who was really interested in how um, she thought the mostly male dominated 
uh, ethical world of ethics and philosophy managed to have an entire century of or two of talking about ethics without ever mentioning the notion of trust. Anyway, she thinks that uh, the heart of what trust is is making yourself vulnerable. It's entrusting somebody with something in you um, and exposing yourself. And often you get a lot out of that, right? But it is putting something in somebody else's hands. I think with a lot of art, we're literally making our soul vulnerable, right? You read an emotional book and you're opening yourself up, right? If it's a manipulative, cruel, it's going to fuck with you. It'll make you feel bad feelings. And it might, I think most, for example, fictions can transform you emotionally. Read a lot of like Nazi propaganda and you're going to turn into a worse person, right? So I think there is this profound act of trust and vulnerability whenever we engage openly and sensitively with any artwork. And I think with narratives, a lot of that is identifying with the character, letting yourself feel their emotions, letting yourself get sucked into that world, right? And with games, it's opening up your agency, taking on this alternate agency, going all in and like getting absorbed in this desire set that somebody else made and getting emotionally involved and if it's a good game, that's awesome. And if it's just like crappy, addictive piece of crap, you're going to be fucked. <laughs> I mean, if you ever want to think about how vulnerable you are in games, I'm never allowed to play any version of the computer game Civilization ever again. Yeah. There yep. is a vulnerability yeah. that I, I have to close off. Because the last time I did that and I, I opened myself up to it, it took like eight months of my life and it just like broke them <laughs> and like, it was gone. Maybe this would be a really good chime i've been thinking about since reading another idea in the book which is this paradigm of the these different modes of play striving play and achievement play uh which are really important to sort of the core argument that you build about reasons why we might play games and you sort of lay out that the achievement player plays games because they the sole value for them in playing games is comes through winning and the striving player plays games for the challenge and in playing games for the challenge of game playing they take on Right, the the goal of a game is still to win, and they have to take on that goal while playing the game. But what they get out of it isn't just the fact that they won; they get something else out of it. Let, let me modify the way you put that slightly. Thank uh, you, because I'm you. a little worried about centering challenge because I think it's really important that some games are awesome because they're easy, and that's sure. that's that that's crucial. That's I mean, this is so. There's another part of philosophy that thinks about this stuff uh, in the philosophy of sport, and one of the problems I've always had with the philosophy of sport which is a really interesting area, is they tend to center excellence, achievement, and victory. And I think those theories can't handle, mm. for me, stupid, silly games, like drinking games, party games. And it's so crucial for me that any theory of games understands the value of stupid fucking drinking games. Yeah. And I think part of this is really, I mean, part of the background, the reason that we don't think enough about games and play is because we live in a production-oriented society that cares about making... So it's really easy for a production-oriented society to pick out and elevate the games that, by which we gain more skills. But I think that in some ways, the most radical part of game playing is the stuff that embraces stupidity and ease, which is very radically different from um, games that make you a more skillful programmer or whatever. Anyway, so let, let me answer your question. So here's the theory. Uh, the background of this theory is this incredible book. Um, my, my favorite book in the philosophy of games, uh, Bernard Suit's book, The Grasshopper. To anyone that's interested, you have to read this book. It's a majestic book. It's also funny and well-written, which is really rare. Uh, 
So his account of games, there's a long version and a short version, but the short version is to play a game is to voluntarily take on unnecessary obstacles to make possible the activity of struggling to overcome them. So let me say that one more game time because it's incredibly crucial. To play a game is to voluntarily take on unnecessary obstacles to make possible the activity of struggling to overcome them. So, I mean, a lot of people notice immediately like, oh, they're obstacles, you're struggling, and you're taking them on voluntarily. The key to suits is actually this idea of making possible. One way to put it is that what he's talking about, what a game is, is an activity that is essentially constituted by the obstacles and constraints. They're not accidental. They're not imposed from the outside. It wouldn't be that activity without those obstacles and constraints. So one way that Suits puts it is that games involve essential inefficiencies. So uh, what what he's saying is, okay, in normal normal life, in practical life, what he calls technical life, we try to do things for the sake of the end. When we're trying to do something, we have some goal and we do it because the goal is valuable. And so we do it as efficiently as possible. The first thing you notice about games is in games, you have a goal and then you go about that in some inefficient way. Like your goal is to cross the finish line, but then you're, then you're like, it's a marathon. No lifts, no taxis, no bicycles, right? You take on all these inefficiencies. And I think his idea is they're not just accidental. It wouldn't count as running a marathon if you took a lift, right? That's the key idea. It wouldn't count as making a basket if you used a stepladder. What that activity is, is conceptually constituted, right? What it is to make a basket is to do it inside certain constraints. What it is to run a marathon or cross the finish line is to do it inside certain constraints. So the constraints are necessary to the thing that it is. So if that's right, then whatever the value of games is has to be inextricably entangled with doing it inside those constraints. So whatever that means, that, that means that the end is not valuable outside of the process of achieving it inside those constraints. So I look at that and I think, okay, what Suits is exposed and didn't make explicit is there are two motivational sets now for doing this. One is called achievement play and the other I call striving play. So achievement play is play that's oriented towards the value of winning, Right. It's still a game because it only counts as winning if you do it inside the constraints. But what you care about is winning. Striving play is when you adopt an interest in winning for the sake of the struggle with the obstacles. That what you care about is struggling with the obstacles. So I, I think striving play is, is the really unique category here. Uh, one way to put it is in normal life, we take the means for the sake of the ends. But in gaming life, we take the ends for the sake of the means. Does that make sense? Like in, in rock climbing, yeah. I'm trying to get to the top of the rock, but I do it because I want the process of this kind of particular delicate creeping up the rock using tiny holes, right? Um, also important, so maybe tell me again if it's too technical. This is the stuff I care about in philosophy. Um, a lot of people confuse the idea of achievement play and striving play with this other distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic value. So intrinsic value is that something is valuable in itself, and extrinsic value is it's valuable because it leads to something else. And people want to say, like, oh, achievement play is extrinsic and striving play is intrinsic. No, 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 no. Okay. They're they're skew so this is sorry, I'm I'm being super flossy here. <laughs> these are skewed concepts, and you can show it in the following way. 
You can be an extrinsic achievement player. That is your interest in what follows from winning, like money or status or glory. You only get the money if you win at the game, but you care about is the money. You're an extrinsic achievement player. You can be an intrinsic achievement player. You just want to win. You don't care what happens afterwards. You just want the win. You can be an intrinsic striving player. You just love the struggle itself. But you can also be an extrinsic striving player. You can play for the sake of goods that follow from the struggle. Easy example, fitness, right? So if I run a marathon for the sake of fitness, I don't need to win to get, I can come in last place and I'll get fitness, right? But I'm also not engaged in the struggle for uh, for the struggle itself. I'm engaged in something that follows from the struggle. So, I mean, and I think a lot of us are some mixture. A lot of people are probably some part achievement play, some part striving play. I mean, I rock climb, obviously, I think I, I'm a striving player that's both intrinsic and extrinsic. I both love the glory of the motion, but I also, it's my way of keeping fit and not going nuts, right? So I, yeah. I derive all kinds of intrinsic and extrinsic goods from striving. But I think it's really important that I am, a stri- I mean, for me to understand what I'm doing, that I'm almost exclusively a striving player. So one of the interesting things is, so when I've given early versions of these talks, some people, some people are like, oh, this makes total sense. I'm a striving player. And some class of people are always like, this makes no sense. You're crazy. There's no such thing as striving play. You just cooked up this absurd category. Some people who say this are don't play games at all. The games are stupid. Another category of people who say this are very competitive people. Another category of people who say this are people in philosophy of sport who are very who have this theory that what it is the reason we play is to win and be excellent, right? And so I needed an argument that striving play was real. And so here's the argument. This is probably the most important part of the theory. Um, argument one: Sometimes, even though in order to have fun in a game, I have to try really hard to win during the game. Outside the game, I make moves in my life that make it less likely that I'm going to win. Here's an example. So my wife and I play tons of games, right? Uh, we're actually very different in skill. She's a chemist. I'm a teacher. She's incredibly good at anything that involves geometry and spatial manipulation. I'm honestly good at anything that involves social deception and lying to people and manipulating their motives. Um, and so a lot of games, one of us is really good and the other isn't. But sometimes we find a game where we're perfectly matched. Typically, I mean, I think a lot of good Euro game design involves playing a different skill set. So in a really good one of these, like, we'll be really well matched. And it'll be awesome. And then at night, on Board Game Geek, I will find a strategy guide. And I know my wife doesn't read strategy guides. And I know if I read it, I'm just going to win. So if I'm an achievement player, there's only one rational thing to do. Read the strategy guide, win. Because winning is the point, Right. But in these cases, I don't read the strategy guide because I don't want to actually win. What I want is a delicious struggle where we're evenly balanced. To have that delicious struggle, I have to absorb myself in an interest in winning temporarily during the game. But we can tell that I don't actually care about winning cosmically because I don't read the fucking strategy guide. And I don't think I'm irrational to do so, which means that striving play is a real category. That's argument one. One more argument, and then I'll stop. This is this is this is the key part of the theory. So here's the other argument. Um, consider the category of stupid games. This is P.S. My term. This is my contribution to philosophy. The technical account of stupid games. So uh, a stupid game is a game where one, the fun part is failing, but two, you have to try to win to have fun. So examples are like Twister and a lot of drinking games. Right? Twister isn't funny if you fall on purpose. It's funny as a failure, and it only is really a failure if you're actually trying. 
So to play stupid games, you have to get yourself, you have to be in this capable of this really weird motivational thing where you think to yourself, oh, I want to fail. That'll be fun. That's what I want. Okay, now I have to actually try to win. So another way to put it is that we have to be able to temporarily make ourselves absorbed in the winning, even if that's not what we actually care about. And I think stupid games really illustrate the reality of striving play. Yeah, I loved so much seeing stupid games, drinking games referenced in this uh, philosophy book on games. And I think like I'm, I'm a huge enthusiast for that type of thing. And again, I think it was a an example of where your book kind of gave me language to understand like why are these games both so fun and also you know incredibly delicate uh like if you're at a party and maybe somebody's not really understanding what's Mm. happening and they're like being silly and like not getting doing the rhyme game right on purpose and it's it's failing yeah yeah one of the interesting things i don't think i fully understand is games that require a kind of having the right spirit so i think some games Mm -hmm. aren't like this so like Chess, who cares what your spirit is? Play hard for whatever reason, it'll work. But like a lot of these, a lot of party games and drinking games, I think also a lot of tabletop role-playing games are much more delicate. They require people to be in the right spirit. If you're not, so with like with Twister, if you're not trying at all, it's not going to be fun. But if you're way too competitive, it's not going to be fun. Like whatever the right (laughs) balance is, is this peculiar in-between space of being pretty oriented to the win, but not completely an asshole um and mm-hmm. i think cultivating that spirit like the the right playful attachment to the end is this like really complex skill that a lot of us have learned and i think it's actually like this incredible social and internal achievement that we neglect one of the interesting things i found when i was researching games is you can literally find like twenty thousand articles on the meaning of the narrative in games and i could find like three articles on drinking games and i'm like wait but it feels like the heart of play is closer to drinking games. This is just like really resonating with me. And we did a whole episode on like irrational actors in games. Um, that might be interesting as sort of a, a follow up to this kind of discussion. We didn't have this same language as we discussed it. But, you know, talking about like all the different types of people you could have at your table in your game and like why it can sort of break that magical circle and it could even be somebody who's trying to like maximize the fun of everybody else at the table of uh you know in in the board game example right where they are you know okay i could really like wipe this person out now and maybe i should tactically to best advance my position but like i want everyone to have fun uh, and like that type of thing too can like fundamentally break that experience for everyone even through this effort of maximizing yeah i mean i think there's first of all one of the interesting things to me is how different games have a different fragility to this Mm -hmm. so background thing uh the designer of magic the gathering the whole design team has for a long time specified that there are several different player types who have very different motives for play and magic the gathering should always uh, be good for all these player types um the like the player types are like the one that wants to win optimally, the one that wants to like have self-expression through their deck, and the one that wants once in a while to pull off something crazy and awesome, right? So yep. and one of the interesting things for me is I grew up on a lot of like very geeky hobbyist games, and those were very fragile. Everyone had to be playing in the same intense spirit. And I think a lot of modern Euro games 
what were designed for families and they're designed so that some of the people are taking it seriously. Some of the people don't really have an idea from what's going on. And some people are just fucking around. They can stand up to that. And I think that's a design achievement. It also limits you from having certain kinds of play. Then you can achieve other things when you have a game that expects people to be in a similar spirit. And I think my favorite examples of these are always like indie narrative tabletop role-playing games, which I think require an enormous amount of spiritual buy-in and a tuning in. And if there's one person at the table that's kind of like mocking the process, it's dead mm-hmm. for everyone. But if you can all get everyone in the same place, then you get this like incredible, creative, magical space. But different games are robu- like differently robust in different ways. The, the other thing you said that, sorry, that's super interesting to me is about one of the... One of the most interesting things in games for me is that some games have the structure where, so there's this concept in philosophy called a self-effacing end. And a self-effacing end is an end that can't be pursued directly. So Aristotle introduces a concept with the idea of happy. If you're just like, I'm going to try to be happy, you would have no idea how to achieve it, right? People get happy when they have some other end. Like he thought like gaining knowledge or helping society or like just winning at sports. And you get happiness by pursuing this other end. Uh, my favorite example of this is relaxation. It's really hard to relax directly. It's like the curious thing about relaxation is if you just sit here being like, relax, damn it, you're going to fail. <laughs> but for a lot of us, the way we relax is I try really hard to climb a fucking piece of rock <laughs> and I devote myself to this brutally, gruelingly hard physical activity that's hard. And afterwards, I'm relaxed. And there's this odd thing where not always, but I think a lot of games, the spirit is self-effacing. Like, Some games are fun and you can get there by trying to have fun. But other games, especially very competitive games, you have fun by everyone trying really hard to beat the crap out of everyone else. And if you're not, if you don't understand that that's the spirit of that game and you try to have fun by helping other people have fun, people aren't going to have fun because the spirit of diplomacy (laughs) is total Machiavellian assholishness. And it doesn't work unless people are there. So two questions. One Striving play and achievement play aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, right? You could be you. Okay, great. Okay, settled an argument in our Discord. Thank you so much. Yeah. Number two, <laughs> it almost seems like poker striving, is fun, and I also get money. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And you would be a better poker player potentially if you're a striving player who also wants to win. Yeah, I think that could be true in like sports as well. And I'm like a big sports enthusiast both in terms of like playing recreationally, watching on TV. Uh, so I loved seeing the sections of your book where you kind of talk about that. And I think, you know, one philosophy, I heard this from an ultimate Frisbee team captain. And he said, like, you don't have fun because you win. You win because you're having fun. I've always took that to be both like, you know, you have fun in the right the striving sense i guess right like you're trying hard you're you're you, okay but also it feels like when i'm playing games like sports with my team and everybody's having a good time out there like we also achieve the better results mm. yeah i mean it's this is they're like two paradoxes next to each other one is some games it's only fun if you're trying really hard to win if you're not trying to win there's just nothing like it's not gripping that's uh um, sure that's one side of the paradox. And the other is there are definitely cases where you do better at winning if you forget about your desire to win and just lose. So uh, the best advice I ever got in trying to climb a climb, rock climb, was a friend of mine was like, um, my friend Sherwood said, who's a beautiful climber, said, 
stop worrying so much about getting through the climb and just enjoy the movement. Mm. And it turns out mm. that enjoying the movement, what I think happens is when you enjoy the movement, you pay more profound attention to where how your body feels. And climbing is a sport where the more attention you have to how your body feels, the better you're going to do because you have better understanding of exactly where your body is. So right. you have these two weird loops that are really interesting. Yeah. I know, I know you're not like a sports psychologist, but I definitely, just for my take, I think there's something to that, right? If you think about like running a marathon, right? If you're like right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, like the whole way and thinking about like trying to like perfect your stride, you're probably likely not going to achieve the same level of success as if you're able to kind of like let that go and just like get into the zone or, or whatever other kind of terminology people use, like a flow state with it. So I think also one of the interesting things about games is because the wind state is so binary, you get better feedback for getting into the flow state. So, I mean, one of the most interesting things, so I do yoga and one of the most interesting things about yoga I read was, I think it's from a yoga writer named Godfrey Devereaux. And what he said was, I could never do seated meditation because when my mind wandered, nothing would stop it. But when I'm trying to do yoga and I'm in a precarious position, when my mind wanders, I fall over and I notice that my mind has wandered. Same thing happened to me with rock climbing. Rock climbing has a binary victory condition, mean, a binary signal of success. And one of the, my problems is, one of the reasons I like rock climbing is my mind is often lost in philosophy and it's hard to shut up. I need, and rock climbing demands a certain focus. And if your mind wanders during a hard rock climb, you fall off the rock. And like, that like amplification of failure makes it actually easier to tune in to the right mental state, which is like this, this is real. I mean, I think the relationship between being obsessed with the victory condition and being lost in the flow state is really interesting. And you can't just say, Oh, don't pay attention to the victory condition. Just go for the flow state because we know that it's easier to achieve flow state in games where the victory condition is really explicit. Do you think Sort of reading through this, it made me realize that culturally, it feels like in a lot of ways, the default mode of play, I don't know if that's the language that you're comfortable with, for board games is striving play. That when I go and have a game night with my friends, we're all coming to that table in a lot of ways more invested in the striving aspects of that experience than we are in the achievement, right? No, I, I mean, I think it's going to be super variable from context. I do think you're right that in our context, in our society, most board game nights are understood as for striving play um, and people that depart too much from that ruin the mood. But I also think that like there are other contexts. So sure. the Olympics, I think like if I fly across the country to a magic, the gathering tournament, right. right yeah. Those are contexts for achievement play. But I also think Absolutely. it's really like, I mean, I just think it's, these things are really variable. I think there are a lot of games where some of the players can be achievement players and some of the players can be, I can go to a, a Magic the Gathering play, a tournament as a striving player that really mm-hmm. likes intense, absorbed games and go up against achievement players and we'll do fine as long as we are we have the same amount of absorption. But I think that you're right in the current board gaming context. There's a certain limitation for a lot of us on how much competitiveness will allow, specifically because we all know we're in it for some kind of, the, the goal is a kind of striving play for some kind of social joy. I think yeah. this idea of striving play has like, it kind of opened my eyes to something I've observed for a long time in the tiny sphere of like hobby board game influencers. 
where it seems like these people that take on this like influencer role, for lack of a better term, will often talk about how much they lose games. And it's always kind of like made me wonder, like, what's going on with that? Uh, And I think now after reading your book, it's almost like some kind of like a virtue signal that they're a striving player. That seems right to me. And I think a, a, a related thing, I re- I just realized recently, I have to correct this in public, but I realized I actually sort of stole one of the main articulations from a book I read 20 years before I wrote this book. And when I reread it, I was like, crap, here's where I got the <laughs> idea from. Better cite that really soon. Uh, it's John Gierak. He's a fly fishing author. And he has a, he has this, a, a bunch of essays that have the same feel where he goes out and he tries to fish. He doesn't catch any fish at all. And he comes back kind of like spiritually refreshed and awake, but without having caught any fish. And he says, but, you know, we all knew that catching fish was the goal and not the purpose of fly fishing. And I was like, I was like, literally, I know that's where I got that from. I read that when I was 20. That was stuck in my brain. Um, anyway, but I think. And I think there's a thing, I find the same thing in the fly fishing literature. So fly fishing is interesting because it is not the most efficient way to catch fish. You're way off better fishing with bait, right? Fishing with a floating fake insect made with feathers is stupid and hard if your goal is to efficiently <laughs> catch fish, right? It's definitely a game. And, but you'll, you'll often see fly fishers, like in the literature, there are lots and lots of stories of someone having total failure and in the end still like appreciating the experience. I think that's also signaling quite overtly that you're a striving player. I'm just having another like epiphany here. And this is like, I love games. I've always loved games. And I grew up in a family that did not play any games, but my dad is like a huge fisherman. So I am just going to bring this back to him and be like, aha, you are a game player after all, dad. It was fishing the whole time. Yeah, I mean, so Suits always says, like, we don't realize certain things are games because we're so used to them that we forget what the constraints are. But they're really easy to expose, right? Like, what are the constraints in fishing as we do it? You don't use a net or dynamite. I mean, if you want to catch fish, use a fucking net, right? Like, what's this (laughs) stupid thing of using, like, a single baited hook and waiting for something to eat it? Like, get the biggest net you can find. There's, I mean, there's also, like, in fishing itself, so they're very it's funny, like in fly fishing, there's this war right now. This is this will sound incredibly arcane, but like the old mode one of the older modes of fly fishing is called dry fly fishing. You fish only with a little floating insect that floats on the top. You can also use like nymphs, um, and they go uh, which are things that sink to the bottom. Um, and that's much more you'll catch a lot more fish that way. And some people are like, no, no, I only I like only dry fly fishing. I mean and I, I, I feel the pull of this. It's it's much harder. You catch fewer fish. But what you do is you like are like when you are into it, you're just carefully walking down a liver wherever, carefully looking for tiny signs of trout. And then when you actually see a trout, you're trying to land a fly with this careful cast in just like a space the size of a teacup to get the fish to take it off the surface. It is not an efficient way to catch fish. It's it creates an incredibly aesthetically interesting and rich activity. And it's obviously a game. Dry fly fishers are the 18 XXers of board gaming confirmed. Oh, 100%. <laughs> it is the most arcane and stupid and difficult. I mean, I did have that thing where you're sitting there on the river being like, I'm trying to land a 40 foot cast onto something the size of a teacup 
to catch this. Like, what the hell? Am, and, and you realize, no, it's just a really, really arcane, difficult, highly constrained game that's beautiful, right? It's just incredibly yeah. interesting. L- trying to land a fly at 50-foot distance onto a small space is this incredibly interesting physical action. And the reason we we take on that goal, because that action is cool. Right? It's an interesting, rich action. I, Brendan, I know you want to move this conversation somewhere else, uh, but I have to say oh, this. God. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So I just think like, I just wanted to put this out there. When I joined the board game hobby, and I think this is something that a lot of people do. It's another thing I've observed was like, I found pandemic. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, that opened my eyes to modern board games as they are today. And then I really quickly pursued heavier and heavier and heavier games. And I think that's kind of similar to this fly fishing. I've always sort of wondered like why that is. And I think it's sort of like, maybe it's in this like pursuit of finding like the most authentic like board game experience. I don't know what the hell authentic. I mean, I don't know what's inauthentic about an easy drinking game. I've moved away from that now, but it's just, it's something, it's something interesting. I think there's might be something related to the dry fly fisher there. Yeah. So I have a, I have a, I have a theory and the theory is that one of the things that's pleasurable about games for us is, so what do I call it? Okay. I call it the harmony of capacity in the book, which is normally in life actions are way too easy or way too hard for us. And they're either like super boring or impossible. And in games, we can try to find the thing that is just at the maximum of our ability. But the thing is, we get better. And so one of the nice things about games, unlike other things, is we can scale the difficulty, either internally, because the game is a difficulty setting, or usually by finding harder games. Um, and so we can just keep... I mean, in rock climbing, this is the difficulty scale. Like, it used to be that V1 climbs were hard for me. Now they're easy. So I'm, I, I know it's hard for me, so I can just walk right to the problems that'll be just the right level of difficulty. I want a game... I like writing a game that is right at the limit of my intellectual capacity. And that used to be other stuff. And now it's 18xx, right? I got better at certain kinds of games. Like it became easier to do for me to the processing. So I need to step up to the most arcane, absurdly complicated game, which the 18xx games are magnificent. And then I can get this like extraordinary thrill ride right at the limit of my cognitive capacity. Same thing with fly yeah. fishing. Like at some point, other kinds of fishing get easier. You're like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get this fucking fish to eat a fake mosquito I tied myself. Fuck yeah. It's going to take four <laughs> hours to catch one fish, but it's going to be awesome. Which is such a specific human agency to be practicing, right? right? And I think that one of it's it's amazing. And games do this too, which is really the point of the book. And I think one thing that when we've been reading it together and with people who also listen to Decision Space that's really taken us is thinking about the agencies of different games uh, and trying to discuss them. Because I think that even though we all play games and we understand now that we have this language, that this is what we're doing, right? We're practicing agencies. In some ways, games aren't sold to us that way, right? Yes. Like it's not like Reiner Knizia and with whoever published Modern Art originally it was like in this game, you will develop negotiation skills and and manipulate the market. That's not how you sell a game, but it kind of is sometimes. Yeah. So like. I guess, can we just I, talk more about some of the agencies of games, of uh, board games? It's just so fun. Yeah, I, I mean, so, but I do think, I think they're sold that way just without that official hard shell of language. Like, 
the way you sell games, you're like, oh, this is a really interesting market manipulation game. Or, oh, this is a game, this is a this is like a total absorption in instinctive like so there's a iOS game I love called Super Hexagon, which is this very Twitch intense fast game. And the way they sell is, yeah, it's like a game of total absorption and Twitch reflexes. That's just a description of a mode of agency, right? That's yeah. so I do think a lot of I mean, not all of, but a lot of the way people describe games and sell them when they're talking about the mechanics and the actions do look like just descriptions of a particular kind of agency and why and why it's awesome. Like, oh, this is going to make you totally absorbed in Twitch reactions to like a maze shooting towards you. That's a description of a mode of agency, right? Sure. Um, but yeah, so the 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 thing I think the thing in the in the book you're referencing. So one of the things I the wildest part of the book uh, that I thought I was going to catch the most shit for um, <laughs> is a claim that goes something like this. So each game encodes a different form of agency. Some games by man- encode the agency of like manipulation of other people through deceit, like diplomacy. Others like Spyfall encode the, the mode of like trying to catch and generate bullshit. And each of these focuses you on a particular f- kind of action and mode of action. And so when you play a lot of games, you tour a lot of different kinds of agency. So one way to put it, the TED Talk slogan is games are a library of agencies, right? Different libraries have different use recording mediums to capture ideas, stories, images, and games capture agencies. And so when you play them, the way that games make us more free and autonomous is they let us explore Instead of like ideas or arguments or stories, they let us explore different modes of being an agent. Okay, one of the reasons I play very few AAA computer games right now, and the reason is because I find they keep upping the graphics, but I find them agentially boring. They're just exploring the same agential mechanics over and over again. Like, I'm going to collect a bunch of shit and grind my character and... I mean, I, I can't make fun of this too much. I mean, the amount of my youth that I spent like playing every single Bioware RPG game like to death is, but but I feel like um, the reason I'm much more excited these days by a lot of indie video games, but especially the Euro board gaming scene and the indie tabletop role playing scene is I find innovative agential mechanics that show me new ways of acting that I've never seen before, and then I buy a new AAA video game and I'm like, this is the same agency that I've been in 2 billion times before with slightly better, uh, with a more elaborate, like library of shit to collect. Sorry, rant over. (laughs) No, I think that's what really has drawn Jake and I to board games too, is the opportunity to experience different types of agencies like over and over again. That's what's so exciting about opening a new board game is it's a totally new way to experience agency. And I think in doing the show, we've develop this language T to look at games and think about how their decision spaces change over time. So right, some games, their decision spaces grow as you play. The longer you play, the more decisions you get to make. Engine building games. Other games, they shrink and they wane over the course of play, right? Like trick-taking games, you're constantly having fewer options options, and your agency's diminishing. So if games are the agency of art, do you think they're key way that as humans we just get to practice gaining and losing agency yes something that's like a core part of life but yes it's hard 100 percent. so i have to be okay let me let me put issue one warning because i realize i wish i'd said something in the book because there's the most common way i've been misinterpreted the most common misinterpretation is people think that games are good when they give you more agency so games with limited agency are worse and games with lots of options are better i don't think that at all i think 
games manipulate agency and there are some games that are incredible expanded agencies and there are some games that are like haiku in agency where what's amazing is their minimality. This is why I love Knizia so much. I think he's a genius of minimal agency games, right? I think that Knizia... So one of the most... So two of my favorite games, I feel, are like maximalist and minimalist agency. Go is a ma- like super agentially complicated. You can do all kinds of things. Limit Poker is one of the most minimalized agency games, right? It's interesting because of how much you need to do with like almost no options. And so many yep. of my favorite Knizia games, like Raw which is like a incredible design. Raw has the most tiny agency pop. Like you have, so if you don't know Raw, it's like this bidding game and you're, you're basically building the size of, your options are basically every turn you either add to this, add to the, uh, add to the pile of things on auction or you call an auction on it. That's pretty much it. And when you bid, you literally only have three coins per round and they're only three rounds so you have so few possible actions and the game challenges you to manipulate people and get as much done inside this tiny tiny space so just to be clear i think some of the most beautiful manipulations of agency give you really slender minimal agencies that's that's just like some of the most beautiful novels are written with minimal language and like you know there are your maximalist pensions and then your minimalist Hemingway's. Each of them is beautiful in their way. We spent an hour discussing Sushi Go on the show last week, so we're totally with you. <laughs> totally with you. It's also funny, like the the especially when you talk to designers, a lot of the times designers are most impressed with not the most complicated game, but with like a really yeah. spare design. Yep. This is like the most impressive designs I've seen in the last few years are Chivatil's uh code names and then yep. the mind. And the mind no, is the no. most minimal game possible, and it blows my mind. And when you read the designer diaries for stuff like this, you find out like it actually takes way longer to make a five rule party game that works than to make like a fifty page rule. Because anyway, so um, I think you get an agency expansion effect by playing a lot of games when these games give you different tours of different kinds of agencies and where some of those agencies in a particular game might be hyper-minimalized. Being in very tight, minimized agencies in some games is part of the exploration process that expands your repertoire of agential styles. And I mean, this sounds really fancy, but what I literally mean is literally the reason I'm a good negotiator in university administration processes as you know, everyone's trying to defund the philosophy department because I fucking played diplomacy (laughs) (laughs) and I've been trained on bullshit and I've been trained in 18xx on how to offer people the right co-incentives to get them on your, like, I learned that shit from board games, man. So awesome. So I came into this, this discussion with a question for you, which was, do you think that games with more agencies are what people would call heavier games? And I feel like from the conversation that we just had with the mind, it's not quite that. There's more to it than that, right? Like the mind is a, there's a, it, there's not a ton of agency that you practice and it is a lighter game, but there's so much depth in the agency of, I have to know exactly when to play this one card. I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? So I don't, I think agency is not like a single, uh, single spectrum that we can just rate things on more or less, but sure. I, I do think that there's not quite a direct correlation between heaviness and lightness and more or less agency. And here's 
here's what I mean. I think there's a lot of light uh, of heavy games right now that are very restricted agencies. Where I mean, and I think I think a lot of this. I think um, so. A lot of the U Rosenberg like heavy like the current Euro style of um, there's not a single name for it, but I think of sure. it as getting resources to convert resources to get resources to buy more resource converters to get more resources to buy more resource converters. They're heavy in the sense that they require a huge amount of complex of of calculation. But I think that I mean I think 18xx is a game with a huge amount of agential space and is very calculative. Where a lot of modern Euro games in the Terra Mystica, U Rosenberg space are very calculative and heavy, but have very limited agencies and look more like Knitia designs with limited agencies, but with more number crunching. Um, yeah. And at the same time, I think a lot of really light, fun, especially tabletop role-playing games that are quite creative and just have a few rules are really essentially expansive. You can do a crap ton of things in them because it just has this huge open palette for you to do junk with. So, so one thing, uh, one of our kind of contributions to board game discussion was we kind of were thinking about theme and we thought of three types that theme can really be broken into three types. You've got like the environmental theme, kind of like the painted on theming, like the mechanics, do those thematically fit with what you're doing? And then we have this third terminology, which we called and got a ton of flag for decisional theming, which is like, do the decisions in the game that you're actually making feel like, and now I'm thinking of the terms like feel like an agent. So Brendan, yeah. I'm wondering, yeah. do you think that what we were kind of searching for decisional theming is like really like the an agential theme, like how much the type of agency that's actually expressed in the game and if it fits with the theme as presented to you? Yeah, I think so. And I think what's so interesting is so many people are drawn to different types of theming. And I think because we're all drawn to different types of of games, right? Where I might come to a game and I might really want to feel like I'm doing something through the action of... This is why I like Kinesia games, actually, T, is that I think a lot of his designs, people say, aren't thematic, actually are tremendously thematic. Modern art is a tremendously thematic game. Uh, High Society is super thematic. I was going to say exactly the same thing. And I think the theme isn't in a lot of the superficial elements, but I often feel it's baked deep into the mechanics and deep yep. into the kind of decisions and the kind of strategies. So I think of, so Tigris and Euphrates has two really excellent examples where I think one of the keys of Tigris and Euphrates is there's this all, all these little conflicts that fall yep. into chaos and then these certain structures that survive. And so you have to do this short-term planning, but you always have to have your eye on what which of decisions will create a structure that will survive conflict and will shape the coming conflict? And I think even though the theme is the rise and falls of civilization, and even though it doesn't have like little things where, oh, I buy a machine that'll make me catapult, which is what I think a lot of people think of as theming, the deep decisions, I mean, I totally see why you call it decisional theming. The the kind of the the flavor of the decision is deeply thematic. And I think a lot of the times, I mean there's a lot of new games that I'm kind of down on where it feels like the theme is really superficial. Like, Oh, I can buy this thing that'll let me, but like the, the game is supposed to be about epic, whatever civilization, but it actually is just like accounting where I think like the feel of a Knitia game is, it feels like this epic move of civilization and time. I mean, I think Knitia is really good in this way in the way that a lot of the indie RPGers are because I mean, I'm sure you know about this, but a lot of the worries in that world started 
from a thoughtless something like, you know, we came to Dungeons and Dragons for these epic stories of great fantasy narratives. And we got a system that simulates basically killing and shopping and nothing else. And I know that D&D has gotten better, though a lot of the ways it's gotten better is by cherry picking the ideas of the indie people that were its critics. But what you see there are these mechanics, in that indie world is these incredible mechanics that create um, deeply, that feel, okay. Uh, can I talk about the coolest mechanic that I've been obsessed with lately? Yes. Please, please. Uh, have any of you played John Harper's game Blades in the Dark? No. Oh also my no. <laughs> god, this game is good. Okay, so here, are you ready for like the most thematic mechanic ever? Okay, it's a role-playing game. Um, it's set in some steampunk, demon-riddle, magical Victorian world, blah, blah, blah. Um, wizards and great generals and heroes, you don't play them. You play the cons and thieves who are going to do jobs on them. And this is how the game works. So your team decides, okay, we're going to break into this wizard's vault in uh, and like fucking take his magic diamonds, whatever. Uh, so your players are going to plan their heist. Sorry, your characters are going to plan their heist for a month, but the players don't. The game skips over the month of planning and skips you straight to the break-in. It gives you 10 stamina points. And as you're running your job, when you run into trouble, you spend your stamina to have flashbacks where you play out retroactively what you did in the past to prepare for this very moment. So cool. So That's awesome. So it auto-generates this kind of like Ocean's Eleven-y theme. And then <laughs> yeah. it, adds, it adds the coolest inventory mechanic I've seen that's very in line with this. So you decide whether you're light, medium, or heavy equipped, which is how visibly geared up you are. Sure. But you don't decide what what you're taking ahead of time. Light is you get three slots. Medium is you get five slots. Seven, uh, heavy is you get seven slots. There's a list of what type of things your character type could have brought. And then as you go through, you check off your boxes to have brought that grappling hook, right? And so the mechanic is this incredibly weird, like narrative hacking mechanic, right? And it just feels super, I mean, the thing is what it doesn't feel like is what it must be actually like to actually be a person on a heist. What it feels like is living out an Ocean's Eleven movie, right? And it does so spectacularly uh, because of that mechanical innovation that creates this per particular kind of emergent play and because of the same decisions it shapes, right? It, it ends up feeling super gamey in this really interesting way. I mean, it's such a different decision space to, in D&D, decide what to bring along before the action to before you fit your encumbrance limit versus being in this thing where you have like, well, I've got five slots. I'm falling through the air. Get to use three of them to run along a grappling hook. That was worth it. Now what do I do knowing I only have two slots yeah. left? It creates a completely different relationship with inventory that has like, it has this very cool feel that is very cinematic. That sounds yeah, that's right. It doesn't amazing. simulate actually being a con. It simulates con theater, which is awesome. So cool. And the waning decision space, creating that tension as you're running out, struggling to... Oh, it's so good. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it's very okay. gaming. Like, it creates this tension because you don't get this tension in D&D about what you had brought along. Mm. But yep. if you have a limited number of inventory slots and a limited number of stamina points to have these flashbacks, I mean, the way that makes the game is if you have 10 stamina points to have flashbacks, you're basically invincible until you run out. And so you start to dole them out and you start to like dole out your inventory slots in this very delightfully gamey way. It's just, 
It's just delicious. So I want to be uh, consider your time. We've been talking for a little over an hour now. I know that we could talk for hours and have an amazing time doing that. But I wonder if we should maybe start wrapping up here. And, and of course, T, it's been amazing talking with you. And you'd be welcome back on our show anytime. If you want to come talk about Kinesi with us, we are 100% down. <laughs> I, I could talk about Kinesi infinitely. <laughs> do, do, do you have a last question? Do you want to finish up? Do you have a last thing? I would love to ask you, in addition to The Grasshopper, do you have any book recommendations for sort of you give in, in the book or no, in a talk I listened to, you gave a recommendation of uh, games for non-game players. Can you give us a, a recommendation of like philosophy books for, for game players? I've got some off the wall ones. So this is for people interested in games, but this is stuff from outside what's explicitly about games. So my favorite book in the game space is Suits is the Grasshopper. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most interesting sets of books that might be interesting to game designers are some books about spatial design and urban planning. So Jane Jacobs' classic, The Rise and Fall of Great American Cities, which is really about the kinds of design of the space of movement in a city that make a city fall to pieces or make it like live or make it like a live and interesting set of interactions. And uh, in a similar key, a follow-up to that is Christopher Alexander's book, A Pattern Language, which tries to teach you how to build your house for yourself by teaching you how to think about how various design choices change how you move through a space and how a space comes alive. So he has this really interesting set of discussions about how, um, he says, for example, um, if you create private spaces and utility spaces mixed together. And then your public spaces, like your common room, are to the side, the public space will be dead. But if your private spaces, like your bedrooms, your offices, on one side of the common space, and you put the utility spaces on the other, the people will be constantly crossing through the common space on the way to the bathroom or get coffee or whatever, and that space comes alive. So it's, I mean, this is along the theme of the idea that games are close kin to city design and spatial design. It's about subtle changes in the constraints of our physical space that change how we interact, how we move. It's about how space conditions agency. And I think that's really interesting if you're interested in game design. I teach that. I teach those texts in my tech and design ethics class and students who think that we're just going to, we're talking about, you know, games and algorithms go nuts. They love this stuff. The Jane Jacobs in particular is one of my favorite books. Um, on the side of the um, the terrifying. If you're worried like I am about the overgamification of the rest of life, um, I can really recommend. Uh, so one book to read is Wendy Esplund and Michael Souder's Engines of Anxiety, which is about how the law school rankings transform legal educational culture completely in the way that everyone gets obsessed with those metrics. But the real, the key book that unlocks a huge amount of the space for me is James Scott's Seeing Like a State, which is a classic in the humanities, which I think you all would love. It's about the bad gamification of everything. But the way to put it is Scott thinks that large-scale states, and by states he means both corporations and governments, can only see the parts of the world that they can measure in ways that can be processed through a large-scale bureaucracy. So states can only see the parts of the world that can be readily measured in the form of some institutional metric, which, as we know, misses out on a large part of life. And then he says, so states, in order to become more effective, have a motive to transform the world to make it more easily countable and legible in bureaucratically processable terms. 
So this is the dark side of points. That, Harrowing. That yeah. sounds amazing. And also, let's. Just, I just want to take a moment to plug your book. I think like I was a little bit intimidated coming to it to be picking up a, a, a philosophy book. It's outside of my normal reading patterns of uh, mystery novels and such. But I found it really accessible, really entertaining, and you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think it's just an easy, easy recommend for games agency as art if you're somebody who's enjoyed the kind of discussions that we have on this podcast. And I think you'll find it's even more approachable than you think it is. At least I did. And we've only kind of started to scratch the surface too in this conversation on the ways that it's changed how I think about games. So oh, thank super- you so much can, for that. Can you tell too. me just, I'm, I'm super interested, especially since I end up mostly talking to philosophers. Can you tell me a few ways in which it's changed your thinking about games? I'm just really curious. Yeah, I I think it's made me really clearly reflect on my motivations for playing games and and even just critically engage with why, why certain games make me feel what they make me feel. Like, it's one thing to... I think you've given me really specific language that I'm going to keep thinking about for years. When I sit down, the the section on the the Matt Gertz game on... Uh, why am I blanking the game right now? Imperialism 2030 about how the the agency of that game is about manipulating states, not not succeeding in, in wars. It's about profiteering off of war. And I think that as I it, it it's made me realize, well, one, the whole objectives conversation completely like blew open how I think about objectives in games and led me to thinking about like different types of objectives and how those make us feel. But also too, just how the agencies of specific games impact how I'm specifically interacting with games and interacting with each other in a way that I don't think that without thinking about them as agencies made me realize was happening, right? Like the the whole way that I play, have, have you played Babylonia, the new Kinesia game? Oh yeah, it's from, fucking like, awesome. It's, it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so good. And playing Babylonia made me realize why that game has makes my wife and I feel incredible things when we play it sometimes incredibly positive things and sometimes incredibly negative things and using your lens i think has made me realize why and it's that kinesia just tells you to like get out of each other's throats and and like choke each other's everything that you're gonna do and if under i'm doing such a sloppy job of trying to answer questions but in detail i think kinesia has some games where the heart of the game is spotting what other people are about to do and blocking them. And the most yes. effective blocker is who efficiently moves a little bit. It's hard to move forward and easy to block. And so yeah. action involves like various kinds of choking other people's opportunities away from them. And I yeah. think it's a very specific mode of agency that he's really good at. And some people love it. And for some people, it's just a miserable experience of like bad Brazilian jujitsu and just suffocation. Yeah. I love it. But it, I mean, he does that, right? Um, yeah, he d- absolutely. Yeah, check out part one of our Tigris and Euphrates episode for more on that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess with that, T, yeah. thank you so much for your time. This has been such a fantastic conversation, and we're so so lucky to have you on the show. And you're, yeah, just thank you, thank you, thank you, T. Before you leave, though, do you want to plug your Twitter or anything? Sweet. Uh, you can buy my book, Games Agency is Art, because it'll make me happy. It might make it me will. happy. I don't know. Um, if you want to follow more of my work, uh, my website is objectionable.net and there are links there to free versions of every paper I've ever written. And I'm on Twitter at ad hoc, that is A-D-D underscore H-A-W-K. And 
yeah, I talk about games and teaching philosophy a lot there. And goes viral talking about Wordle and not grading <laughs> and lots of other really interesting stuff. And you should definitely follow T on Twitter because it's going to be a, a lovely ride. And you can find Decision Space in all the ways you typically can find it. But we'll be back next week with another episode that is a game deep dive. And thank you so much for listening uh, to Decision Space. Thanks. Thanks.